The small consultancy is an in-house recruitment support to PE and VC backed scale-up startups and carve-outs. We provide in-house recruitment support to companies going through periods of growth and change. We've worked with PE backed scale-ups across industries such as defence, energy, green tech and edtech. We understand how critical it is to get the right talent in place to meet growth targets and funding cycles. If you'd like to discuss how we can help you grow, please get in touch. Hello and welcome to The Small Podcast, where we talk to the people navigating the challenges of a career in private equity and private equity-backed companies. I'm Jonathan Evans, Marketing Manager for The Small Consultancy, and with me is my co-host, Managing Director and Lead Consultant for The Small Consultancy, Caroline Hall. Hi. Today, we're talking to Ian Moore. Ian is a senior HR executive with over two decades of board-level experience and extensive exposure to high-change programs within the private equity sector. Ian's also a board member of the Chichester Chamber of Commerce and runs his own HR consultancy. Hi, Ian. Hey, John. Hi, Caroline. Hi, Ian. Hi, Ian. Thank you very much for agreeing to talk to us today. Um, we usually start by getting our guests to give us a quick kind of whistle-stop tour of their careers and kind of how you ended up doing what you're doing today. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. So my background, corporate, blue chip, uh, IBM, Capgemini, AT&T, um, standard, I guess, type of HR career going through all those uh, organisations. Um, and then got made redundant from AT&T in 2005, took a year out to do my uh, my gap year at the in my mid-30s around South America on the back of a truck and uh, <laughs> decided that actually I didn't want to do corporate life anymore uh, and came back and we uh, set up a, a recruiting and HR business for a couple of years. Um, and then I went back into working for some P-backed businesses um, in telco and uh, automotive data. Um, and then in 2015, came back out and started Dodge Court, uh, which is a consulting business, uh, both for PE firms, but also we provide HR services for uh, smaller organizations, charities, where typically they, they may not have a HR team, and we provide that HR service. Um, and then for the last, whatever that is, seven, eight years, we've been managing that retained work with working for project-based uh, activities for PE backed businesses typically yeah. uh, in a variety of different sectors. For So from manufacturing through to tech to energy um, and uh, most lastly into uh, financial data, which again has been quite interesting. Yeah, that is quite a variety. And I mean, how do you kind of juggle that the, the different needs that you have this obviously you've got your retained work but then also you've got the project work how how do you usually go about that so really fortunate that we've got a, a good team of people associates that we can draw on uh, so we, we balance it out based upon uh, need and capacity at the time mm. so uh, a lot of the retained work we've currently got we would use associates to deliver that mm. um, and then in terms of the project work we would then create a project team uh, and then go in and deliver that project with a, a group of known individuals uh, because then we, we actually start off as a team rather than being mm. a group of um, 
strangers that you then have to go through that whole learning exercise with. So uh, certainly on a project, you want to be able to be effective uh, uh, reasonably quickly. Uh, so it always helps if you go in with known people, you know their strengths, their weaknesses, um, and you actually hit the hit the, the road running, to use that awful phrase, uh, quicker <laughs> uh, and become more effective but adding value earlier than perhaps mm. you would if you were just thrown together um uh through a variety of different sources mm. and you mentioned obviously the you decided to take a step back from corporate you obviously set up your your consultancy and then you ended up back in p was was that because of the telco link again from your at&t days um not necessarily. I, I think that the PE piece was more by luck than by judgment. Uh, it, mm. Sometimes these opportunities come along and you just end up going, oh, actually, that works quite nicely. I, I, I like this. Um, you know, opportunities to go back into corporate life have come up. Uh, my reluctance to go back into a corporate role is I think I'd get extremely frustrated with the process and the governance i won't use the word bureaucracy um because that's mm. probably wrong but the, the 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 amount of governance that goes through all of this it's not necessarily a bad thing but i think that the attraction of pe or smaller organizations is that they're more agile and more nimble so you still mm. have a level of governance mm. which is absolutely imperative but the governance doesn't rule the process and i think that's slightly different in a corporate world and, and equally, I've been out of that corporate environment since 2005, so I think I'll be extremely frustrated and probably not a great person to have in there at that moment. In the <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, it's funny because uh, we were having a conversation, myself and Carla, literally about half an hour ago about making slide decks for <laughs> for presentations. <laughs> it is something that you generally don't get in smaller companies, you know. No. So, yeah, I, I completely get where you're coming from with that one. Uh, and you obviously mentioned you put these project teams together that, you know, you will go in. I mean, for you, what does that ideal team makeup looks like? I think there's there's probably three key areas to that. There's, there's <clears throat> the overarching project, client relationship, deal management type of role, which is, I guess, probably more where I would sit. Uh, in terms of working with the PE firm and the organization in question and being part of that bridge between the two from a, a people mm. perspective. Um, certainly a strong HR operations person uh, who can actually pull everything together. And if you're doing a, a spin-up of a new organization, you need someone who understands the links between process and practicalities. Hmm. Uh, be it payroll, benefits, onboarding, whatever it might be. Um, and then the other one would be talent acquisition uh, because hmm. invariably in any of these deals, the, the organizations generally are bought by PE firms because they've been hmm. underinvested by the, the, the current owner um, and therefore you need to spin up uh, the capacity quicker uh, from a re resourcing point of view. And also change often means people 
folk with their feet and they leave because they don't want to they, mm. they enjoyed working for a abc company uh, they're now bought by these pirate equity firm and they don't like it and that, that, therefore they make a, a, an informed choice and they leave and therefore you've got vacancies so in that, invariably with any of these deals that we do the first three to nine months you, is the period where you see increased attrition where people mm. will leave so therefore you need a, a decent um approach to talent acquisition and you need someone who can come in and understand that so they're the three sort of roles that we would always try and fill you've obviously got the the, the admin and the process and the bits that sit around that but in terms of the three key areas to cover then they would generally be the ones that we would look at in the first instance hmm. yeah, yeah it's interesting i mean modern HR, a lot of the time, you know, you, you you see specialists in kind of every area. So it's interesting what that balance is when you get to, you know, as you said, these nimble companies that are that are scaling quite quickly. You know, what level of one person overseeing something to needing that specialism still in place? And so, no, that's really interesting. Um, kind of spinning on from that, I mean, if if somebody's looking at bringing in a HR function, you know, they are looking to do that scalar piece and, and kind of growing quite quickly. What advice would you give to them if they were looking to bring in HR function? I think it's being realistic in, in what their expectations are. So typically, if you're coming into an acquisition, um, you, you've got all the grand stuff that you need to go and do. So you need the diversity and inclusion you need the employer branding you need the um the slick application website the ats all this sort of stuff you need that but you don't need it on day one day one you need to pay people you need to provide them benefits and you need to make sure they're insured um after that it doesn't nothing else really matters but what a lot of organizations want is they want those if, if you like the the grander uh, the the value add elements there and then and what we try and do is say you just need to take a breath let's get the basics in place let's give you a, uh, a minimum value proposition from a people perspective and then build on it over time don't expect to be able to do it all on day one and that's part of where the the issue I think comes from is that people, are wanting the whole suite and in reality you just need the basics in place so uh, I, I use the phrase from an it perspective of the minimum value proposition from a hr activity and then three six nine twelve months later that's when you build upon that when you've got a better understanding of what you what you're in operating mm. if you try and do it too soon you, you can't really uh, get that that in place mm. and because obviously you're working with the different sectors and obviously you know you're not just working within the p side of things but i imagine a lot of those companies are still again you know you said you're working with, with charities and things like that you know a lot of those will still be smaller companies i mean do you use kind of the same approach there though or are there things that are very much specific to p and specific p challenges I'd like to say yes, there are, because that may 
<clears throat> may increase my value to some of these organizations. <laughs> but in, in reality, it's all basically the same, right? So people are people, irrespective of whether they work mm. for a, uh, a 10 million pound business that's just been bought by a private equity firm or a hundred thousand pound charity uh, that employs seven people that it's, they basically need the same stuff. They just need it on a pot potentially different scale. Mm. But the way in which you approach the end result could be different because working with a charity, they're more focused, potential, they're more focused absolutely on the end result in terms of adding the value to the cause that they are passionate about. In a, in a business, it's about driving value, the EBITDA, creating that opportunity for an exit in three, five, seven years time, whatever it might be. So mm -hmm. it's about approaching it in a way in which the population understand. So you, you, you have the same toolkit, you just approach mm -hmm. it in a different perspective. Do you say the timescales are different? When I know you mentioned scales earlier, would you say that's more of a timescale issue or, or problem? Yeah, I, th I think so. I think in a larger business, they need to see they need, they need to see results quicker than perhaps mm. in, a, in a charity in a small organization because they've got they're not under the same amount of pressure. They're still under mm. cost pressure, still under revenue generation pressure because they still got to pay the bills. Mm. It's it's not being driven perhaps as aggressively than it would be in a payback business who are mm. purchasing the organization not out of the goodness of their hearts because they, <laughs> they they want to do the right thing they're doing yeah. it in order to create value that at an exit they're going to get a multiple in return and you know generally they'd be looking at you know high singles into double digit multiples depending on the industry that you're working mm. in in a charity they're more interested in how do you secure the next level of funding or uh, the um, sponsorship, the uh, contributions, the donations? How do they continue to have that fundraising element come in to be able mm. to spend it for the benefit of the, the cause that they're, they're championing? Mm. So they're, they're very different ideology, ideologies and therefore are different in how you approach it. Mm. Um, and again, you could have the same conversation with somebody in finance or somebody in IT in those sectors will probably have a very similar viewpoint. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's one of the reasons why I think we, we've asked everyone <laughs> that, that, that. I was going to say, that's is. the next podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is, as you said, it's really interesting to see how different people within different functions CP differently and and have to mm. yeah operate with, within differently, but even within the same function, we've had completely different answers and we have sort of things about yeah. challenges, which yeah. which yeah, it's been has has been really interesting. I mean, going on to the more kind of general HR piece. I mean, you know, you, given that you've worked in those large corporates, you know, you've done the consultancy piece, done the interim piece, but you know, within quite large different companies. I mean, how much have you seen HR as a function change over that time? And what, what sort of been, have been the biggest changes? Oh, that's a good question. 
<clears throat> that's a good question. I, I think I think the biggest change is that HR now is seen as a proper function, is seen as a proper uh, um, de- department is probably the wrong phrase, but they're, they're definitely seen as a group of a group of people that add value to an organization. Mm-hmm. I think the pandemic absolutely catapulted uh, HR from the back of the queue to the front of the queue. Mm-hmm. It's been pushed back a little bit since uh, the end of the pandemic, I think in some businesses. I think those who are certainly looking at being innovative, being attractive for candidates, uh, both and also for retention, are keeping HR towards the front of the of that queue. Um, I think where we've got to now, it, it's not about, it's not just payroll benefits. Yes, they're important, and yes, you've got to get it right, and that's your the core things. Well, some of the core cool things you need to be able to to deliver, but it's not it's not that's not all that HR does now. It's mm-hmm. much more around the diversity and, and inclusion. There's far more around mm-hmm. um, well being, mental mental health awareness. There's things around how you create high performing teams, mm-hmm. but also how do you just create performing teams? Everybody talks high performing, but actually. February's high performing. Who is going to do the stuff that just has to get done? So, it. I think that evolution is is working a positive way. Um, the piece that I think we're not there yet on is everybody HR having a table a sit, seat at the executive table in all organisations. And I think the other piece is not having enough people with HR backgrounds sitting as non-executive directors of boards. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, they tend yeah, to be finance, IT, maybe supply chain, potentially, or former CEOs. You don't see a lot of mm. HR people necessarily sat as a, uh, a non-exec in a, in a FTSE 100. And be interesting to know how many non-exec FTSE 100 directors have been a HR director. I, I don't know the answer to that, but I suspect the percentage wise compared to CFOs, really, really small. Yeah, um, I can be agreeing. Me and Caroline talk about it as, as the small consultancy a lot. And we, we talk about it as recruitment as a strategic function. And that's that tends to be the term we use. But that's exactly what we mean is how do you get recruitment at that top table? And in those discussions that help companies sooner because you're having those discussions sooner so you can start getting them to think about the things they need to put in place to make their growth accelerate basically sooner um it's interesting as well you mentioned procurement and supply chain because um i mean 10 years ago procurement was going through that exact change well you know 15 years ago i mean when i was working in procurement when i started we were doing what's called a hundred day saving plans where you'd literally go into a company, you'd rip up everything. And the entire aim was just to see how much money you could save. And, you know, that changed dramatically, you know, over the course of, no, that's not what procurement is anymore. It's about adding value. And then it became a, well, actually, why isn't procurement at that top table? And, you know, there was a real drive over that 10 years to push procurement up. And I think you're right. HR, 
is going through that change over probably the last five years based as you said it may be some larger companies but it's still not quite there yet i mean are you seeing it having in any effect since the pandemic on at least you know the type of conversations you're having at those initial stages before you go in so who you're talking to the kind of questions they're asking yeah i think there's definitely a bigger awareness of of the people agenda which is which is good um very much more around that value add about the engagement uh, about how you can build in uh, strategies to attract retain uh, and motivate so i think mm-hmm. those conversations are definitely coming through uh, more and more uh, i think there is a, a still a big l- lack of understanding of some of the value that a good HR team can create. Um, and it's, you know, it's not just there to to get them out of the sticky waters because they've made the wrong choice. It should be far more than that. It should be far more of a partnership going forward. And I do see certainly organizations that we've worked with lately, the the magic triangle or the magic square, where by that I mean the, the CEO, the CFO, the HRD as the triangle and potentially the CRO as the square as the, the key core elements of decision-making are certainly becoming more prevalent, uh, which is great. Uh, if you take the HR away from that, then you're basically having the wrong conversation uh, and you're not having the right level of influence. So I think it is changing. I do think people are willing to have uh, a, a greater uh, appreciation of, of the HR side. I do think that it's still got a long way to go. Mm. Certainly when you go mm. and talk to some PE-backed businesses or PE funds themselves, the HR is, yes, you've got to do it. You've got to, it's important, <laughs> but they're more worried potentially about IT, procurement, ironically, mm. about making sure the supply chain and your costs are under control and your finance. Um, and I think the way that I would qualify that is when you start talking about project costs or day rates, HR still sits well below those sort of other things. So if you talk about a CIO uh, to be paid comparable to a CHRO, typically mm-hmm. it's a 30% or perhaps more difference going mm-hmm. forward. Um which I always struggle with, not necessarily because I, I want to uh, increase my day rate or increase my project rate, but I do I do struggle with it a little bit. Of the HR team are potentially coordinating and providing the glue to keep this whole thing running, mm-hmm. and yet the the rates across the board are significantly lower than comparable to the IT or the procurement or the finance yeah. team. So interesting point. So I, I find that disingenuous at times where they go, oh yeah, HR mm-hmm. and people are very, very important. And then you go, oh, but by the way, your team can, you know, your project costs are going to be 30% less than the IT costs. But I don't mm-hmm. understand that. So I think that needs to change as well as the appreciation and the acceptance of, of the value that HR provides. 
And that's, uh, I worked for a PE back to business about 10 years ago and they brought in HR so late and he actually called them the fun police. That's his sort of perception uh, of HR. And when the HRD started or HR manager, he was so inundated with problems because there was so much to sort out. Yeah. They realised we should have done this a while ago. Because they were, and and, I, and that's the change that, that I've seen happen. That it's not that perception anymore, but it's still mm. there's still a long way to go. I mean, every well, more or less every like survey you see this on LinkedIn or anything like that, where somebody's saying, "What are your major problems within your business?" Yeah. Nearly everyone puts people, whether that's recruitment or so you know retention at the top of that list. So. But you're completely right. You know, no one's putting our ERP system isn't fit for purpose on the top of their list, are they? <laughs> so, no, you no. know, why aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I think go back to your earlier point about what's changed. You know, HR typically was seen as a um, as a cost that the business mm. had to is a burden. Um, I think the the good HR teams are now very much around demonstrating the value that they create, be that cost avoidance or be that actually creating uh, value through the employee proposition through the, the the retention strategies that they've put into place to to keep that talent in internally so there are ways of demonstrating all of this stuff I, I think as well from a private equity point of view certainly conversations that we have, have had in recent probably last two years and I continue to have a number of these P-backed P funds are now going, we need HR to come in, not at close, not even at mm. sign. Mm. We need HR to come in pre-sign to help with the due diligence. And that is a fundamental shift of thinking in the P-backed organisations. And that has massive amounts of benefits and value uh, mm. to the organisation and also to the, to the P fund as well because suddenly you've got the it the finance and the hr all there together at the start so back to your point caroline of timing historically hr would always come in at close it wouldn't or maybe at sign or just after sign now coming in far earlier which is great I mean, but it's easy because i mean if you're making plans and making forecasts based on things that are entirely unrealistic without HR yeah. and recruitment input yeah. of, no, that's not going to happen, you know, within within that timescale. So you're missing that big, well, that massive bit of knowledge to be able to make those assumptions that you're making. Yeah, and, and I think as well, the other side of it as well, there's that, you know, all these, all these funds and all these businesses take in expert advice from, uh, yeah, you know, some of the big consulting firms because it's the right thing to do because they've got that breadth, that scope. But there's a reality check that needs to come into some of this as well that says, you know, just because a, a consulting firm says uh, a, a role or a, a service is going to cost X, that doesn't necessarily mean that's how it would work for that organisation that you're acquiring or you're disposing of. It will be different. So having people with real-life experiences HR, tech, wherever, actually can qualify and quantify some of these assumptions that have been put into the cost models. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, 
these guys walk away and it's down to the the project team or the p fund or the, the incumbent management team depending on the, the, the deal that's underway to manage the budgets that have been set by people who then got paid and uh, and then left the building never to be seen again and and that that's not right yeah and i mean it well it, it's probably why even before the pandemic the one place you saw hr nearly always at that top table was just in time manufacturing for example because they have to have that oversight of course because you're doing the workforce planning in real time you know you're putting people in places constantly you know it's not a in six months time it's this it's tomorrow it is this so you know so but even on a, a, a more micro scale you still need that oversight from hrs and i think that's a really good point yeah, and I think, again, it depends on the, the sector that you're working in. You know, some of these sectors are extremely challenging in terms of pay. Mm. So manufacturing, well, we did some work a while back with a, with a, a manufacturing organisation. And, you know, you, you, could work, you could earn more money working, stacking shelves in the local supermarket than you could working a 12-hour shift on the assembly line. But people didn't stay for that. They stayed for all sorts of different reasons, but mm. having HR as that oversight and providing that level of input and that level of um, context allowed the business to make the right decisions because resourcing was the biggest issue they, they have. And you know, it, every sector has resourcing issues, but manufacturing is acute um, because of what they pay, what they can afford to pay. Mm. You know, IT back businesses or data businesses, they can pay, they should pay the right amount of money. The mm. question is whether they're funded in the right way and their budgets are set up correctly, different conversation. Mm. But typically manufacturing will, will attract the lower paid roles and therefore it becomes more of an issue. And that's why you need that resourcing HR. I, I like the phrase oversight that you use there, John, in, mm. in those in those sectors and those those industries because they have to be part they have to be at the coal face and they have to understand but be able to influence back up just staying on the, the the kind of general hr industry i guess for for this next one have you seen much tech disruption in the hr industry over the last few years yeah there's lots of automation going in which i think is good so the onboarding process far more automation in that the way in which people are working with tech has, has changed. And I think the pandemic is obviously, you know, working at home, talking through screens, all this sort of stuff. That that has changed changed it significantly. Um, mm. I don't think that HR has embraced technology as much as it perhaps it could do. I, and I, the reason for that, I think, is more around you still got to have that personal contact. And mm. however much you try and do stuff remotely, you're, or through a screen or through technology, you still actually have to have some level of physical contact. Um, sorry, that sounds quite inappropriate. Now, <laughs> it's more about you actually, actually meet people in, in a real life scenario um, rather than it being being on a virtual one. So. I think HR have pivoted really well uh, to try and embrace them as technology changes. The big concern I've got is the AI uh, implement mm. uh, statement coming through and how that's going to impact 
you know, resourcing, um, letter writing, contracts, uh, um, bias, all this stuff is, is quite scary when you start thinking in an AI activity. So I think there are definite advantages to some of this stuff, but I, I think the HR needs to take a breath and not get caught up in the, um, the big shiny new stuff. It needs to get the principles right. And I think partly sometimes the, the, the basics are lost because of the technology. Yeah, that, that's a good point, actually. And I mean, it's a conversation we have within recruitment well, quite a lot at the moment is, mm. you know, as you said, it's AI. And it, there, there seems to be those two camps of people just don't want to engage with it at all. And it's like, no, that it's rubbish. Yeah. And then there's the people who were, you know, it will take over everything and will be out of a job. But, but it's, it's that balance of, as you say, it needs to, it needs to be there to automate things and assist things. And if you can make the kind of day-to-day bits that nobody likes and take those away but as you said resourcing and hr you know there'll always be that human element that you need to have those yeah. and, and i think i think from a, a hr point of view you know it th- there is that judgment call there is mm. that empathy there is that level of emotion that you have to pull into yeah. into decision making and you can't do that all through automation and, and if you do get to that point, then it's going to be really a really scary place to be. I mean, just picking up on that AI point, um, I was talking to one of our clients the other week, and um, we just sent out some new contracts, fine. And then she got a, a, an email back from one member of staff to say, you know, that she accepts the contract. Thanks very much, and this sort of stuff. And she said, "Have a read." And I went, "I'll, I'll, I'll, I'll use a different name from the person involved, but I went, there's no way that." that that Joan would ever have written that. And she went, no, absolutely. She got a chat AI to write a acceptance letter back to say that she accepted the change to terms and conditions. And the way in which it was written, there was no way that that was the style of that individual. Mm. And it just sort of was a really Why? simple example of you going, okay, that's laziness on one side, but on the other side, yeah. it's really scary to think that people are using that technology in that way. Mm. And you look at it and go, this just doesn't work. It doesn't make sense that the way in which it's written, the style, the words are completely different. So then you go into, we start to think about, well, what would happen from an application point of view if you got a, a, an AI to write your application letter? go to an interview you, you're going well hang on a minute you, you and yeah different tone of voice that. style yeah and, and then it becomes quite it comes quite an interesting debate so we're starting to see even in some of our smaller clients where ai is starting to creep in um and i guess it's, it's, it's no, a man of a certain age like i am it's quite scary quite frankly i don't quite understand it it's quite interesting. If you search on LinkedIn, just the phrase regenerate response, you will see how many people have just copied wholesale from ChatGPT into their um, bio at the top. And have literally, because they've not read it, as you said, they're just copying stuff and putting it in and sending it off. They, they've just left the regenerate response thing at the bottom. When they put it in, they just left it in the thing. So this is it. It, it, it's, it's kind of basic laziness, but it, but it does actually, if you're doing that all the time, as you said, it, it gets to a level you are undermining basic 
skills, I guess, yeah. to a certain yeah. extent that you need to function in the workplace. So it, yeah, it's, it's it's going to be interesting anyway. I think that's a whole different podcast. I think we need to organize. Yeah, we'll, we'll, I'll come back, you, on I'll that. back to another one if you like, Caroline. That, that yeah, thing. definitely. I like to get I, a load of recruiters in HR and really just. What is going to be the impact? So I think that's going to be fascinating. I'll, yeah. I'll do my um, speech on post work if you want, and uh, <laughs> why 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 the pandemic was a missed opportunity for universal basic income. We'll we'll start on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me started on that. That'll be eight podcasts by the time you finish this. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so moving back to kind of the the P side then for a bit a, a little bit. So what would you say your biggest highs have been within private equity biggest highs um surviving deals i think is probably the biggest high to actually come out with your sanity at the other end um <laughs> and, and, and that's, that sounds like a flippant response but actually it's not because pe when you pe tends to work at pace and mm. you have that conversation with people oh it's, it'll be pacey oh well, i've done pacey and then it's not until you've actually gone through an acquisition or disposal that you realise what pace actually is. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, we recently worked with somebody who um, we hadn't worked with before, and we we, we brought her into a team. And you know, it's going to be this is going to be that pace. And she went, "Yeah, I've I've worked for a big organisation that worked pace." And we got to the end of the project, and she went, "I've never worked at that pace before." Because it, it's relentless; it can be relentless constantly. Yeah. So surviving is 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 a big high, um, but also it's about achieving and hitting that that level of milestones. Um, that they're the, the the greatest buzz, I guess, of saying, "Yeah, mm. we you gave us this task, we we man we got it over the line." It may not have been pretty, but we got it over the line. I think in terms of lows. Um, that's quite an interesting question. I think lows are more around where you haven't managed quite managed to to get everything done in mm-hmm. the timescale that you were you you were setting up. Um, certainly with acquisitions, it's it's quite difficult because you are you you are you are waiting on others outside of that outside your organisation mm-hmm. to get stuff done. So that can be quite frustrating if you're going to do a change. A transformation it's the speed that the organization doesn't that you're working with may not work at the speed the PE fund wants to to work at to get that transformation through and that can be quite quite frustrating and and that can be quite quite low on that of you're ready to go but the business is like I'm not quite sure and and it takes longer perhaps to get through so um mm-hmm. I think, and then the other one is that working with PE funds is, it can be a joy, but it can also be a really horrific experience in the sense of their expectations and the way in which they work. Mm-hmm. Uh, some are better than others, and we've worked with quite a number now, and we've got our favourites, um, and we've got some that we go, I'm not really sure we'd want to work with them again. Um, you know, ones we've just recently worked with, we, we really enjoy and we really like working with them. But that's because we've done a number of deals over the past. So you, you've mm. got that level of trust, which I think is useful. But yeah, I mean, PE P is very different to FTSE 100s. Um, mm. They've got their own 
challenges from a shareholder perspective. But PE just that they are relentless because they are wanting to get this organization on the trajectory to get that earn out in in a period of time. So they haven't got time to waste. And I think that's probably the biggest difference between that and a shareholder based organization. Mm. Um, quickly, just remind me to come back to the transformation piece in a minute in case I forget, because oh, I yeah, okay. covered that slightly. Um, but before before that, and it just been off what you say, you know, use some quite strong words there in terms of, you know, yeah. the, the experience that it can be. I mean, what advice would you give people for kind of looking after their mental health, you know, while you're going through those intense periods? When you do a deal, it, it's, it, it is just nuts. And, and I, I shouldn't use yeah. that phrase um because i've got told off for using it and i'm rightly so it, it it is the most frenetic period of time that you you'll ever understand mm. because it, it's not nine till five yeah coming up to close it's 24 7 getting the last bits of the contract over the last minute negotiations all that sort of stuff it, it is it is absolutely full-on the key thing is you've got to look after yourself and you know you've got to have the people around you and that's why when you work as a as a as a team that perhaps know each other you you know the signs early on of when someone's not quite right and it's being able to have the outlet the 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 downtime whatever it might be to actually rejuvenate uh, and uh and and get that kick back in uh, to, to actually get on to the next phase of what you need to get done. So it, it, I did use strong phrases. And I think if you talk to anybody who's been through carve-outs or mm. disposals, it is full on. Uh, mm. And in, unless you've been through it, you won't really understand it. And that's not being disingenuous to people not having a level of empathy. And people do work hard in all sorts of different environments and uh, so forth. But it, it is different and it can break people um so the key thing is being able to to identify it and also put into place measures and interventions to to help them Uh, and often when you're doing these type of uh, projects you people are scared to actually ask for help because it's Mm. a fixed project it's a fixed time uh fixed level of resource actually there's always extra resource you can bring in and, and I think that's the, the thing around yeah. doing work with PE firms is that, that they that they always squirrel something away and there's always the, the ability to, uh, to, to help flex that capacity to, to help people through. Um, so it, it, it is different. It is different. It is dif- difficult. But then when you come off the back of it and you're on a real high because you've delivered yeah. and you've actually managed to yeah. pull the pull it out of the bag in the last minute, that, that's a really great feeling uh, to then yeah. go on to the next one. Mm. And we've we've covered it before in a previous podcast about having that teamwork. And I totally agree. We've obviously worked together in on a yeah. on a carve out and it's having that teamwork so you can vent yeah. and and just go, ah, this happened, or <clears> whatever <throat> your day is, or that hour or whatever, or a you know challenging stakeholder conversation you've got that team around you who yeah. you can vent to and express that frustration, get on with it and go, okay, I'm done now. It's fine. Yeah, absolutely. And well, you'll, you'll know this from when we've done stuff in the mm. past is, 
you know, mm. I, I've got a rule of anybody in my team is that, you know, you can just phone me up and vent. And that's, you yeah, know, you just phone me and go, I'm going to vent now. And you just get, <laughs> not, I'm not going to say you shouted at me, Caroline, because that'd be wrong. But, but you know, you get that that time of just to, just to get it out and then just to get a different perspective. And then, as you say, it, it, it then allows people to, to have that released. Um, and I yeah. think, hmm. you know, back to perhaps earlier conversation about part of the problem with, with the last couple of years is that we haven't had people together working mm. in an office mm. and you, you don't have that opportunity or the channels to actually get some of this frustration and some of this anger and some of this jubilation out because you're sort of doing it all all on, on your own at home mm. and if you've had a really great day and you just want to go this is brilliant you know apart yeah. from talking to the dog nobody else is really around to have that to share the no. to share the success so it's not just about sharing the negatives it's about sharing the positives i think we've missed uh, a lot of opportunities by not being together in an office on a frequent basis uh, to, to to get that through but it is having the right team around you to to be able to to, to spot them absolutely and obviously we, we you know with we are still even post pandemic in a world where a lot of us aren't still working from an office in shared teams i mean from a hr perspective what would you recommend that people do that they can improve that bringing people together as you put it well, that that's that's the unicorn question to be completely honest with you um and there isn't there isn't there isn't a golden answer to that uh, and it's mm-hmm. something we get asked daily it's got to be around what's right for the for your business and what's right for your people. Um, so my view, and it is quite straightforward, is that businesses are not banks. Businesses are not charities. Ironically, we work with a lot of charities, but just, just go with me for a second. Businesses, and even charities, are there to be successful, to be, to be able to pay the bills, to be able to invest, to be able to create shareholder value whatever it might be it's not there to be a bank or to bail people out so you've got to be able to have some of those tougher decisions say i know you've been working at home but actually i now need you in the office that isn't going to sit well with everybody but businesses need to be bold and just say we need you back but work with your with the people about what what will work for them so is it a blended is it every other tuesday is it you get certain teams in on certain days have those engaging conversations absolutely and and get people back uh in a way in which they feel that they're part of that conversation but businesses shouldn't shy away from it because at the end of the day the business if, if there's a need for people to be together the business has the right to say to people you've got to be back in the office that doesn't sit well with with some of my HR colleagues because they want it to be much more collaborative and engaging. And, and I get all that, and I'm not disputing that for a second. But fundamentally, the business is in control here or should be in control and not the people. Um, so ways in which we've seen it work really well is um, getting people back in with a purpose, getting people back in, understanding why they need to be there and not just because the MD or the uh, manager wants people in because they don't trust them working at home. And we get a lot of that. 
but also that people feel there's value in being together. So even if there isn't a business purpose, there's a personal outcome and a personal purpose that they satisfied by being there. Um, yeah. And to get them back into a routine, it's like anything. It's a bit, it's a bit like, you know, uh, last couple of months, I've not really done a lot of exercise. I know you might find that hard to believe. Um, <laughs> last two weeks, you know, I, I've I've actually gone, right, okay, I'm going back on the bike. I'm actually going to do stuff. I'm out yeah. of the routine of doing it. Hmm. It's the same with going into the office. You get out of the routine of doing it. Once you've got it back into that routine, the rest of life sort of fits in and slots back in again. So for me, it's around purpose value and uh routine to get people back in but it's also the fact that businesses need to be a bit bold and just say yeah, i need you back in but accept that some people are going to walk with their feet mm-hmm. and and if that's if that's what they're going to do then my my counter that is were there the right people in the first place to, to drive your business forward discuss I don't yeah. do lots of fuzzy HR, Caroline, as you know, sometimes, but you've got to be bold. And, and I think, you know, that in today's market where it's yeah, candidate short, people are really scared of uh, putting stuff in that's going to annoy or disengage their current staff. And yes, you've got to be conscious of that and you've got to try to not do that too often, but equally, you're still a business. You still need stuff done. You and and you need to. The business needs to drive itself, not be driven by people's reluctance to not get out of their house. Yeah, I think that from what I've seen, the sort of hybrid is working. People are enjoying going back in a couple of days a week, yeah. as you said, at their choice, either by teams or. Um, by routine etc um, and it's interesting you say about trust and it's fascinating that that's still coming up yeah. you know we've worked from home for two years pretty much when obviously the pandemic was happening to use that as I'm not sure I trust my team or or, or uh, my staff it's crazy isn't it because yeah. that trust should have been built up and, you know, it's proven that we can work from home. So that's interesting. That that's, yeah, that's I, I think the other piece is, is that um, there, there's a level of, comp- I think I think there is the trust, but there's also that complacency that people, mm. uh, ma- managers or leaders are struggling with of, is everybody just being complacent at home because they've got used to to that level of flexibility and freedom? So it's it's not it's, it's trust complacency. There's all sorts of nuances to it. So I, I think it's like all these things. It goes through cycles, right? So you'll get to a point where you were forced into trusting people and it all worked. It will come back around again at some point. Um, mm. But I think the other side of it is those who choose not to go into the office need to engage with with people. I mean, we were on something the other week, the other day, uh, where. There were eight of us on a on a on a Zoom call, uh, and only two of us had cameras on, and we were trying to talk about something that's oh. quite sensitive. And you go, well, actually, you know, why aren't you hmm. putting the camera? Oh, you know, yeah. I, 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 so so so, and some that's people are conscious about it. You know, I've been out in the sun today. I've got a really red face. Probably not the right um, uh, <laughs> thing to do before coming onto this. However. <laughs> 
you know, um, people are self-conscious and I get that, but equally you've got to play within the rules of the team and you've also got to participate. So there's Mm. all this other stuff that's going on in the background as well, which is just, again, conversation in itself, I suspect, but it is interesting about getting that engagement factor back in. Mm. Well, that's another podcast, Ian. There's so many you're bringing okay. it out for me. At, at this rate, we'll be, we'll be a co-host before before the end of the month. There you go. Exactly. You'll be a regular. <laughs> I mean, we actually we actually posted on LinkedIn today, didn't we, Karen? A, a blog about flexible working within private equity and how it's not all about just working from home. You know, and, and this seems to have become flexible when somebody thinks about flexible working it just automatically seems to just be oh that's working from home yeah. not all the other stuff that comes around with flexible working and that seems to be what's missing from the well a lot of the wider debate that you see around in the media particularly feeling stuff it's you know there's give and take that can be had on both sides on that that yeah. you know you can give more flexibility around certain things while still returning to the office but again as caroline said i think most people are happy with some level of hybrid. And I think most people miss that human connection. And it's, you know, as a freelancer, I'm sat in an office right now, you know, which I'm there two days a week, which I don't have to be, you know, but I do it because, I, you know, I want to see people at the end of the day, yeah. like for, for, for some time during the week. So, hmm. yeah, we, we get our team together tomorrow. We're going to have uh, a couple of hours in a serviced office because uh, we all work, work at home, but we get together. And actually, yeah. I know that tomorrow we'll spend, we've got three hours together, we'll spend the first hour talking absolute rubbish because you just need that that connection. Um, and then we'll have two hours of really good conversation. Mm. But that's fine because yeah. but we don't do it that often. So therefore, you need that release. You, you just need to catch up and you know show pictures of the dog, the kids, whatever it might be. Mm that's going to happen in the morning and that, that's great. That's going to be part of part of the whole day. So it's going to be really cool, yeah. but you, you've got to, I guess the point being probably to your point, John, is you've got to, if you are working remotely all of the time, you need to create your own interventions to yeah. actually meet people. Um, be that into an office, be that to a networking event, be that to whatever you, you need that. Most people need that human connection in some way, yeah. shape or form. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I, I will try and do transformation quite quickly because <laughs> yeah, I'm aware that we well, Transformation is never quick, John. <laughs> oh, it's another uh, podcast. Yay, there you go. There you go. Actually, we'll have a whole series of this before we know it, Caroline. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you mentioned that, that and, and again, you mentioned it in a few different answers that, you know, it, things depend on the businesses and different businesses have different makeups and how they work. And you mentioned, you know, some businesses will be very reluctant to change or will push back or be slow. As HR, what's your advice for kind of being able to engage the the wider business and speed up that process? I think the, the big issue with transformation is fear uh, of of the workforce. Um, because they don't necessarily understand how that would impact them. So a lot of people will associate transformation with redundancies or cost savings or restructuring. And yeah, it it includes all of those three, but can also include the other one that is always missed of growth 
investment uh, opportunities that 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 positive against the three negatives is often missed um and if you are in that if you are doing transformation for those sort of reasons if i doing transformation for any reason it's around comms it's around communicating uh, you might not know the answers but this is what we're doing this is where we're at this is how you can help this is what all of that needs to go through this and you know a couple during the pandemic, we did a transformation in a manufacturing business, um, which was interesting in itself. But partly that was around making the organization fit for what it needs to be, to have the right process structures in place that allowed it to, to progress. And, you know, we didn't make redundancies. What we did was we restructured the business and we restructured the organization, the, the, the way in which it, the business worked and the accountability and roles of people within it. And then, you know, we gave them the freedom to go and do stuff hmm. that was transformation, but it didn't require cost cutting. It didn't require uh, hmm. redundancies. It reshaped the business and it created value. Cost base came down because they weren't wasting rather than cost cutting different, slightly hmm. nuanced, but different difference. So you can do that, but that was all delivered through communication, being as transparent as you can at a point, but being updating and allowing people to to feel that they were part of the part of the solution and not having it thrust upon them. Hmm. So transformation is 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 hard because you're ripping something up potentially and then putting it back down. Hmm. Um, you know, we did some work with the manufacturing organisation three three or four years ago where it was a bigger project over a longer period of time but you know we put into place values we put into place a mission we put into place um roles and responsibilities job descriptions we put into place a bonus scheme that people were were were, con- were rewarded for their contribution not just to the number but mm-hmm. the way in which they did it and and all of these things you know come from a, a people perspective but my view on it is that we are the experts we're not necessarily the conduits to get it done you need that through the management teams and you also need it through the people themselves we're just the we're just a conduit as a function to allow some of this stuff to get done and you know, come up with some of the ideas as well so not to underplay it mm. but it can't be we can't do it to the business the business wants it and needs it to be done to itself and the people need to go on that journey. What does that communication piece look like? Is it, well, I imagine it is a mixed approach of, of different things, but is that running workshops, town halls, or is it mainly sort of emails, presentations, that side of things? It, it's a combination of all of what you've just mm. said. The, the, the key thing is it, it's, it's, it's about, I'm a great believer in, in it, it's, you said we did so you said you were going to do that you, you wanted us to do this we did that we did it mm-hmm. or you said you needed extra stuff we did it and it can be so it, it's it, there's a level of that so there's a it, it, the communication channels can be completely different depending on on the organization and and the business but irrespective of whether it's a video message from the ceo or in-person town hall, uh, 
just to do stuff via an email is no longer acceptable in my view we uh, my my kids can create videos of you know what they got for their birthday and send it to their mates in in five minutes it's, it's not polished it's got emojis and it's got music over the top but it 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 conveys a message so there's no reason why a ceo can't do that on a on a train going up into into the office and just say this is where we're at it doesn't need to be polished because people don't need society's changed people don't expect that whole corporate polished piece as much anymore yes they like to to see it yes but equally uh, a video off the back of on the back of a train can be as powerful as spending twenty thousand pounds on a full-blown cinematic experience it's the message and the, the effort is more is more important perhaps than necessarily the quality but it's about comms and consistency taking this conversation on a completely different direction um, obviously if you follow ian on uh, linkedin you will notice he's a very active member of the chamber of commerce yeah uh, i was actually discussing this with caroline the other day i was like i don't really know what the chamber of commerce do so, so yeah, but... <laughs> you want to sort of go through your that side of what you do because that, that's really interesting to me and kind of what goes on there yeah. really i mean i mean so from from us as an organ as a business you know, we're really passionate about where we live so we, we're we live in in the Chichester area down the south coast, um, and we're passionate about supporting businesses that are are local and, and causes that are in our community. Uh, so the Chamber of Commerce in Chichester, so it's Chichester Chamber of Commerce and Industry, is a organisation that supports local businesses. So be that uh, helping them in finding grants. Uh, mm connecting people together, running events, uh, being a voice of the business community to local uh, councils or the, the, the county councils, to industry groups, then that is part of what we will try to do. But the, the key thing, I think, is to bring businesses together uh, of all shapes, sizes uh, and uh, sectors uh, and then suddenly you actually start having conversations together. So I was at a breakfast yesterday um, at the Chichester College uh, where the students were cooking breakfast. Um, we're getting to good breakfast now. When you start in September, they're a bit shaky because they're new students. <laughs> As you get towards the, the June, July time, the breakfasts become much, much more robust. Um, but that's part of it, right? That, that's part of being part of the community of mm -hmm. supporting young people through their journey in in education and learning skills and and you know we we do joke about it you know september not so good july absolutely spot on so, and that's that's great but what it was yesterday we had a whole conversation about diversity and inclusion from um, an external speaker who is a member it's sharing knowledge it's educating mm -hmm. so it's not just around getting in a room and having a chat it there is a whole raft of other things that we get involved in um and it's also absolutely great fun because you, part of it is for small business owners a way in which they can connect with other people and the theme that we, we've probably struck on throughout this is it also is that that interaction it's it's the it's the 
coffee conversation if you're mm. two people stuck stuck in an office or two people stuck out in in your houses and you don't necessarily see anybody to go to a uh, a chamber event which is very social you you have that tribe you have that group of people around mm. you so it's morphed into all sorts of different things but fundamentally the chamber is there to support and be an advocate for local businesses um, and you know we're just um, starting uh, <clears throat> a similar we're starting to expand into into Bognor Regis which is where where I live um, to, to actually bring those businesses in as well and you know, we've got some massive organisations sat on our doorstep from, uh, you know, Rolls-Royce is a good, good example in Chichester, yeah. a massive organisation, <laughs> to yeah. um, down in Selsey, they, they, from a fish perspective, Selsey crab, and they they ship into, into London uh, high-end restaurants. And then you've got everything in between from, you know, one person digital branding to uh, a whole load of, of people who are making candles for well-known brands, and you never know that if you were unless you were part of it. So I'm a great I, have, I have looked up actually. I have um, since looking at your post. I have ex- explored Sussex. I think Chamber Chamber of Commerce. So it's really interesting. Or Checker Trade was based in Selsey before they yeah, moved to Portsmouth. Exactly. Well, that's how you and I first so, had the conversation. Yeah, many years ago. <laughs> exactly. I know. I interviewed you. I think didn't I? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That, that went well, so, didn't it? So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Not my decision, yeah. Um, but <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, absolutely, and that's and that's really interesting. And it goes back to as you said that interaction, that yeah. networking, that face to face, and that support. Because yeah. when you are a sole mm. business owner, and I feel this, sometimes it can be a bit overwhelming, and you're feeling, God, oh, I just you know, uh, what do I do with this information or how do I vent or, or you know, some advice sometimes. Yeah. And, so, and uh, yeah, no, I've definitely looked at it. We've we've also been fortunate. We've we've got cl- picked up contracts and worked through through those associations. It's not necessarily the person that you know. It's somebody that who they know need, has a need. And, and yeah. that spider web gets bigger and bigger and bigger but um yeah, yeah the, the chamber is is certainly something i'm very passionate about and uh yeah, been on board for about two years now and it, it's we're, we're moving it in a really good direction i think um to, so, to be i'm definitely gonna i'm gonna have a look definitely i mean just on that i mean people listening who you know that sounds really good too and you know they might have had previous knowledge like me of not much about the chamber of commerce i mean how can you actually get involved what what do you need to do well the the easiest way is just to google if you're in chichester Chichester chamber of commerce and industry obviously or um and then just sign up i mean it's it it is more around connecting people that is the basis Mm. of what we're trying to do is Mm. connect people uh there's loads of networking events around. There's loads of ways in which businesses can co- can collaborate and and so on. The thing about the chamber is that it it attracts larger organisations and smaller ones. Whereas a lot of the other networking events that you might go to are uh, typically small or micro businesses connecting to micro businesses. Mm-hmm. Things around the chamber and some of the other ones are connecting bigger organisations to smaller. And they, they buy off each other. The, the, the larger ones will buy off the smaller ones. And that's great. Mm. That's, that's what helps that local economy. Um, so, yeah. So um, mm. if you need to find out more, just Google Chichester Chamber of Commerce or Google me. It's the same difference, really. 
but you know, well, I'm lucky that I work with a, a group of uh, passionate people on the board uh, who've come from all sorts of different businesses and organisations. Uh, but we just want to make our business community stronger, uh, yeah. and uh, and we're making slow but steady progress on that on that mission, I suppose. And that may inform your answer to i guess our final question <laughs> so if you were prime minister for the day what is the one one law that you would introduce a one piece of legislation i would that's a really interesting question that's a really interesting question um i think i if if i could do something then it wouldn't be from a business perspective uh, I'm really passionate about um, opportunities for young people. I'm really passionate about getting, bridging the gap between the workplace and education. Um, and I would make it mandatory uh, for every child to be, or every student, or every young person to have the opportunity to go and experience work somewhere. Mm. And, understand the skills that they are being taught at school and how they get can be interpreted in the workplace so uh to uh, be that from an apprenticeship perspective or be that from just pitching up and seeing what's around that i would say that i would make it mandatory for every business to actually have a link with a local school interesting yeah. answer yeah, like that yeah i'm also a, a trustee and a governor of a, of a of Chichester Free School as well. So, which is why I'm really passionate about this stuff it is because we need to create opportunities for our young people mm-hmm. uh, to 100%. to actually um, come into yeah. the workplace. And one of the things we are working with quite a lot at the moment is being able to give them the skills that are required, but also to work with the businesses to understand what they want and what they need um, and how you, you bridge the, the gap, because there is a gap there always will be a gap, but how can you narrow that gap to mm. allow the young people to have the right skills, um, mm. but also the right attitude? So it's not about skills, but having the right attitude uh, to to actually make it in the workplace. Mm. Yeah, I, I like that. You're basically forced in school on a path at sixteen, you know, almost to choose yeah. what you and they, they, you know, they do purchase what you want to do in your future, and it's like, well, it's not phrased right to start with because. No. None of the job. Well, I'm doing a job now that didn't exist when I was 16. You know, and no, I couldn't no. have done what I do now. No. You know, so I spent no. 10 years after finishing uni, literally floating around different jobs, not really knowing what I want to do. Because you said there's not that link no. between what you think you can do and what actually in the real world you can do. And that's where, yeah, there, there does definitely need to be some better, yeah, link up definitely. between the two. I'm exploring volunteering on interview, CV writing. So I'm in the middle of doing that to really support people who wouldn't ever access that or have access to an agency or whatever it may be and really help them get that job. So that's my next avenue. So I 100% support that. It is is interesting working with the school because there's there's, uh, a platform that that they use um, where students can actually log activities that they do so it creates their cv effectively going forward so that nice. you know, 
if you went and did a a ballet show you know that that's showing commitment and if you went and you part of a football team that's showing part of, a, of working as a team but there's all these other things that you can add into this uh, it's called unifrog that allows the child to understand their capabilities and how that works against their competencies but over time works up into a CV. So again, it's back to the point of when you, you, you're talking to an 18-year-old or 16-year-old and you say, what have you done? Show me, give me an experience of an example of working in a team effectively. And they go, well, I don't know. By mm. using, by actually educating them earlier on examples that they've done, then when they have that conversation, they've got much more uh, in, incisive, uh, prepared answer that demonstrates they've done it they just don't know they've done it when they were 15 and why would yeah, you exactly know? so, so th there's all this sort of stuff which i'm really really passionate about of uh of doing that as well yeah no i i think that's really good and i mean korea's advice has already come a long way since I was in school anyway. When you had to fill in those little things that give you fish farmer or something, is like I, I, I can't I, mean it's a long time ago, but I can't even remember having career advice yeah. when I was at school. No, so, I can't remember. Certainly, you know, do, doing what I do now, that was never nobody, nobody ever went. Oh, go into in fact, my first job was in personnel planning. That's how the old I am. It was personnel, and uh, you know that never existed on the on the opportunity thing. And yeah, uh, <laughs> well. Apparently, I suggest I I clicked such a wide range of things that it didn't even give me a suggested career, which is probably <laughs> how I ended up in recruitment. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I probably ended up in HR because I wasn't good at doing anything else. But you know, they <laughs> but see, there, again, there's another podcast in itself, isn't there? On, on how to know, improve? Maybe. Yeah, the student I know. I'm going to start charging you, Caroline. <laughs> I know. Ian, for anyone listening, can you just tell us, you know, how to contact you if they'd like to speak to you by your consultancy work on new contracts? Yeah, the, I mean, the easiest way is uh, go on to our webpage, which is lodgecourt.com. Uh, or if you want to drop me uh, an email, it's uh, ian at lodgecourt.com. So relatively straightforward. So uh, be delighted to uh to hear a few uh, and equally you know obviously on linkedin and all that sort of good stuff as well so um i'd be delighted to, to connect with uh, with anybody who wants to have a a conversation about accents through to uh, engagement <laughs> or short, short transformation work going, whatever you want to talk about uh we'll also put a link to uh ian's profile in the show notes so if you did want to click through that uh, there's an easy way to do it um thank you again ian uh, and thank you caroline thank you. and thank you everyone for listening and we will be back with our next episode shortly thank you for listening to the small podcast we'll be back with even more guests discussing their careers in private equity and how they met the challenges of working in high change environments if you enjoyed this episode please remember to subscribe on your podcast app of choice and leave us a rating on apple or spotify